Hello and welcome to Western Reaches number 13. I'm Saf, one of your hosts, and with me as always is Megan. Hello. And today we have a super duper special guest, someone we've both worked with before. Um, he was one of our co-hosts on the Forcecast and also our co-host on Blaster Cannon, the other podcast we do. This is Paul Herman. Hello, hello. It's uh, it's great and an honor to be on the uh, the great Western Reaches. Saf and Megan, thank you so much for having me on. You're welcome. Thanks for joining us. We're on a bit of a hiatus with Blaster Cannon at the moment, so we wanted to make sure to be able to talk to you some more because you are a good person to talk to. And because <laughs> well, you've and- seen Blade Runner, unlike, <laughs> unlike us. Well, and by the way, I want people to know is that I I actually, um, I asked, oh my God, I asked, excuse me, them if we could do this film because I I just was really curious if, for one, if they had seen it and one, and also if they would like it. I thought they would like it or or spark lots of great conversations. So thank you for letting me have my way and being selfish. So thank you guys. Oh, you're welcome. (laughs) It's not often that I get to participate in the geek who hasn't seen geek canon type of content. So we're going to do that. Yes, yes. It's it's very it's a very powerful film. Very powerful film. Yes. It it's definitely that. Um <laughs> so if you haven't <laughs> oh, gathered boy. already, our big topic for today is going to be Blade Runner, which is a movie that Megan and I had not seen before to not today. Nope. This week. Um but Paul loves and so it's going yeah. to be very exciting yes. to talk about it. Before that, though, we have our usual sections, such as the games we are playing or have played recently. And I'm going to let Megan start this because I'm a little bit embarrassed about what my first one is. So, Megan. <laughs> so, last weekend, um, Overwatch was free on various platforms. And because I was interested in the story but had never actually played the game, I decided to continue not to play the game and take this opportunity to watch the animated shorts that came out that talks about the characters. (laughs) So I watched, um, there are four of them. For what it's worth, I thought about playing the game real briefly and then discarded the idea. Um, I I really enjoyed them. I watched four. Um, The last Bastion was the newest one and it was just as heart-touching, heartwarming as the internet said that it was. Um, Reaper is my problematic fave, which everyone could have seen coming. And I think they were good introductions to a world that I don't know much about and don't have any great desire to find out more about. Like, it it didn't make me feel sort of like I had to play the game. But they they were fun. I'll I'll watch more if they come out. What do you think of Bastion's short? I, I thought it was really good. It was, um, I know, I, it, it wasn't first 10 minutes of Up to me. I didn't sob, but it was cute, and it was so well animated. Oh my gosh, yes, the animation is gorgeous. I, I spent most of that short being obsessed with the way the light was going through the leaves of the forest because I was like, this is just so pretty. I love it so yeah. much. And the, the feathers were beautiful, and like I was... Just looking at the movements of the bird, and it was it was really good. So, do you think you'll ever actually play Overwatch? Have the shorts convinced you to play it more? 
No, but that's because I <laughs> do not, I'm not a big fan of like that TF2 style PvP game. I think what they have convinced me of is that if an Overwatch game comes out with a single player or co-op campaign, which I do not think will happen, but if it does, I would play that. Yeah. Yeah, I can agree with that. You know, can I uh, add it to the Overwatch conversation? Probably. No. Here, well, here, yeah, cause I don't really have a valid like. I don't have a valid like uh, is, uh, opinion. Essentially, just because I don't play the game. Well, obviously, I'm but, so informed myself. Well, no, no, you've actually watched like the shorts. I have not watched anything. It's, uh, no worries. My main pro- my main problem with Overwatch, and again, I'm not a big gamer. I do have an Xbox One. I play Star Wars Battlefront on a regular basis all the time uh, just because I love Star Wars and that's all I really care about besides comic book films and comic books. But um, when I see Overwatch, I kind of want to like play other games and, I'm, and I do you – know, me and Megan have played Destiny together a bunch and I do like Destiny. But Overwatch looks, looks too cartoony for me to really get behind. Mm. I mean it's, it's weird. Like I know it's a video game and a lot of people that I like on Twitter and love video games, they love and rave about Overwatch and – it's funny because I want to like jump in, like yeah, I want to jump in. This this be cool, and I want to do this. And I just I look at the video game, and I'm like, I just I ha- there's nothing about the characters, the animation that I I like. And maybe the gameplay is really fun, but I just I don't know. Maybe I'm just too old. I don't know. You know, I did kind of see that too because as much as I I like the character design, I think they did a really good job of making really recognizable characters, and um. I, I don't, I'm not an artist, I don't really know the technical side of this, but they are characters that can be sort of broken down into very simple palettes, and like, the, the character designs are very, um, you can sort of reduce them, and they're still recognizable, and I love that about them, but, and that's where you get a lot of the chibi art, and like, the, the themed outfits and stuff that work really well for that game, and it's a great game for fandom, but... I agree that, like, every character design, I look at it and I go, like, I almost like this. But there's one thing, one proportion or one detail that I do think is a little more cartoony than something like Destiny, which is even itself on the cartoonier end of, like, shooters. Yeah, it's definitely very very cartoony. And that's just totally the style they picked for it and everything and I can totally see why that wouldn't work for some people like you Paul like you love Battlefront and that kind of stuff and that's way less um, bright and cartoony than something like Overwatch I think that's one of the reasons I like Overwatch so much is partially I mean I haven't played the game either um yikes um <laughs> but like i've watched all the shorts and i've read all of the lore and done a lot of research on it partly because i had to for writing but also because it, i find it really interesting and i really like the way they've done the character designs and the art but it is super bright and super super easy to just it's it can be too much sometimes i think it, it, like i said like to me it, it's i think look at destiny and i i Maybe this is my uh, – what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, uh, just lack of knowledge of video games. But I would look at Destiny and look at it as like – not as cartoony as – at all to be honest. I mean it's like – it's very heavy sci-fi, which that's what that's what makes it awesome you know, essentially. But I don't know. Like I, I look at Overwatch and it just doesn't have – 
this doesn't really scream that I have to play this game. Whereas, like, I've been meaning to, like, buy all the expansions for Destiny. And then you know, when I do, Megan, you better believe I'll be calling you and we'll be, like, playing that. I will be there. Because I will – and I will I will eventually. I've, I've almost broken down a couple times, like, I should buy this. Uh, but no, I, I don't. So – but I will – but it, it's just funny because video games – like, I, I, it takes a lot for me to, to buy a video game and play it on a regular basis. Like, I bought Shadows of Mordor when I got my Xbox One for Christmas – and I have yet to even play the game, <laughs> so I mean that's how bad I am. But I'm tr- I, I'm trying to do a little bit, little bit better. I was really devastated when I found out that No Man's Sky was was not for Xbox One, at least as of yet. Oh, so yeah, I um, it which, but then, I, yeah. So I then, but then I, at the same, yeah. But then I I found out that it's it's a possibility that it will be released on Xbox One. But then I always hear all these really negative reviews about it, so I'm like. Well, maybe I don't want to play this game, so I don't know. It's. I mean, yeah. if you get back to Destiny, I still have a level like thirteen character, so we can play together. <laughs> Save it for me, for me, man. And if you want to know about No Man's Sky, you could always listen to our last episode, which was about No Man's Sky. You could. Oh, yeah. I, you know what? I will because you know what? I didn't know you did <laughs> No Man's Sky. My bad. Yeah. So speaking of shooters. I finished Halo 5. I mean, I played Halo 5 in its entirely entirety last week. And um, I really liked playing it. I'm so it. excited to hear about this because you, I know you didn't love this story, but you're so into the lore. So what, what did you think? Yeah, it's a really, really fun game. I think playing it actually made me more fond of it because 343, I think they played it really safe with Halo 4 and kept it quite similar to the previous games. But Halo 5, they added in a bunch of new stuff like... Like, being able to, like, scramble up stuff and the jetpacks you have and the sprint and everything. Like, it's so much fun to actually play the game. And all the weapons feel really good. The story I'm still iffy on because I don't... I still can't tell if they're leading towards, like, a typical stereotyped ending for Six. Or if they're going to have some kind of plot twist in Six that's going to subvert everything they're doing. And so Six could either be really good or really bad. And that will reflect on how I feel about Halo 5's story. And I know that games, like, a single thing should stand alone without having its sequel affecting what it's like or anything. But it's it's kind of the case in some trilogies. The middle story does rely very heavily on how the third story goes. But mm. I definitely say it did need to be played to be judged because it is a lot of fun. I still can't get over the fact that Buck is just Nathan Fillion. It's just Nathan Fillion right there all the time. <laughs> if it was just his voice with someone else's face, I could deal with it. But whenever he walks in screen, I'm just like, hey, Nathan Fillion. What are you doing here? This is not this is not the right place for you. <laughs> are you lost? <laughs> yeah. Actually, one of my favorite things, I bet it wasn't done on purpose, I'm sure, but it seems like the AIs for um Fireteam Osiris like are different and I'm sure they are to a point because they've all, all got different strategies. But it seems like um oh, what's her name? Not Vale, the other one. Oh, Tanaka? Tanaka. It seems like Tanaka has a really smart AI and is really good at driving. And Buck is just not bright. Like, he gets into a truck and he'll just <laughs> drive it into a wall and then just sit there honking the horn. Like, why won't someone get in? Whereas everyone else is off doing their own thing. And, like, Tanaka is a better driver than I am, which isn't saying much. I'm not that great of a driver. But I am a better driver than Buck. And I thought that was really interesting that you could kind of see the personalities of the characters <laughs> In the AIs as they played, whether or not that was intentional. Yeah, I hope that was intentional. That's wonderful. Me too. He was just so useless. Like, most of the game was just both of us just 
yelling at how useless he was. We were playing it that initially um, I was playing Master Chief and the person I was playing with was playing um, Locke's team. But then it turned out that Master Chief does not have anywhere near as much time gameplay-wise as Locke does. And so we swapped around quite a bit. But it was it was a really fun game. It It's something I can see myself playing again. I really, I like the idea of like the AIs kind of taking on the mantle or trying to. And it kind of, I don't know, it has really good ideas. I'm just not sure if I like how it splits between the two teams. And I'm not sure if I like Locke all that much, even though I really like Vale and Tanaka. Did you have the problem where if your character was was knocked down, the rest of the team would just put themselves in the line of fire to try and get you back, and then you'd end up just all dying on top of each other? Yeah, they were not super good. Yeah, They kind of had the <laughs> problem where I think their priority was they would save you first and not think about anything else. And there's this one battle where you fight like three of the wardens who are super big. And it was just painful. It took me like half an hour to get through it because my team would just keep running into them whenever I died and everyone would just die in one hit and it was the worst. And I (laughs) hope... That's exactly the one I'm picturing. (laughs) I really miss couch co-op for the campaign for these games because that's half of the fun. And I understand why they took it away, I guess, because it's not really a popular thing anymore. But it's half the fun of Halo and it just, it saves you from AIs not making good decisions. And you could still have AI and couch co-op. You just have two AI instead of three. Like, Yeah, exactly. Um, I hope if yeah. they do bring in this team system in the next game, because I have no clue what they're going to do for that, um, they somehow fix that priority in some way that doesn't end up with everyone killed. I agree. And we will definitely have interesting conversation after Halo 6, because I... I completely understand how the end of Halo 5 is polarizing and I have my own like opinions on that and it'll be very interesting to see we whether definitely that need can... a Halo episode at some point <laughs> yeah D- did we not talk about the end of Halo 5 already I thought we had done way we back in the beginning yeah um but I'm it almost seems like there's no possible way to make everyone happy with six and there never is but specifically the the fan division over the ending will need to be addressed yeah i find 343's handling of halo to be really interesting because it is different to bungie's bungie was very much they knew they were making a shooter but they made sure it had an interesting story in the background whereas 343's come in and they've taken the story as being one of the most important things and so a lot of scenes that you would expect to be a shooting scene, like gameplay, um, would end up being a cutscene. And it seems kind of re- weirdly arbitrary. Like, you'd be watching a cutscene, you'd be like, I could be playing this right now. Or there'd be a point where you wouldn't, you would be using gameplay, and you'd be like, this would work better as a cutscene. And it's interesting to see the choices they made there. I feel like the original three Halo games had a lot more gameplay and shooting time than 343 does, which I think is why Halo 4 and Halo 5 are really fast to get through. Hmm. That's really interesting, especially because you have those big set-piece fight scenes in 5. Like, it's so much about Chief versus Locke, but that's a relatively short and unplayable scene. And then you get some of the more QTEs at the end, like you did in Halo 4, right? Yeah. So. Yeah. We we ended up with a problem because um, we'd remapped some of the keys on the controller, some of the buttons on the controller to other things, and then, like, 
when it was telling us to use certain things in the quick time events, we couldn't figure out what we were supposed to be doing and we kept dying. Oh no. So if you ever play Halo 5 and you remap your buttons, make sure you have like a little chart in front of you telling you where everything is or otherwise you will you will mess up. So if I can divert back to my shooter of the moment, because um, the, the <laughs> only other contribution I have to the game section this week well is i did play more soma but it was just continuing we haven't even finished it yet and it's wonderful but i have no nothing new to say about its wonderfulness um i have been playing destiny obviously in the run-up to rise of iron and right before we recorded today i was just wandering around the pvp maps because now you can do private matches in crucible and it's just the same as you could always do in halo you set the map you set the number of people and the type of weapons and the type of gameplay and you can just go in with one person and look around if you want to and so i was there's like some stuff to hunt around for and like you can just sort of get a feel for the maps and it's been delightful and there's some new maps coming and i'm very excited but it's all sort of inside baseball basically paul you should play destiny again i know i need to do that <laughs> seriously yeah but that's about it for me game wise yeah so the other game i've been playing is totally unrelated to every other game we've talked about so far um i picked up mystic messenger which is an i don't know how to say it, otome it's a dating sim game that's on mobile and it suddenly just kind of appeared out of nowhere everywhere everyone was talking about it and i don't usually play these games but i was kind of curious about the fact that it essentially acts as a little messenger app on your phone and so you talk to the other characters through text and email and chat rooms and that was interesting enough for me to check out because it was a different way of telling a story and it works in real time kind of so whenever a chat room opens up it it corresponds to like a certain time in the real world and so the game isn't always going, which is kind of nice. So you can just sit there and you'll see like a message pop up on your phone that's like, oh, this chat room is open. Do you want to go talk? And I'll be like, okay, sure, I'll go talk to these people. And so it's got a really cool style. It's very much a dating sim. And I haven't played many of those because it's not really my style of game. But basically a dating sim, you just play through the game to romance certain characters. So it's exactly what it sounds like. And it, that's why it's quite popular. Because people like romancing these anime boys. But I like... Suddenly, I saw so much about this. Like, today on Twitter, like, three or four people were talking about it. Yeah, I've been playing it for a couple days now. Um, I heard about it a couple weeks ago, I think. Some of my friends started playing it. And then eventually enough people were talking about it that I thought I might check it out. And I, I started playing it at, like, 1am because I was just like, I can't sleep and I'm curious about this game. But yeah, seeing other people on Twitter talk about it made me feel like I could actually talk about it a bit more because it, it isn't the kind of game I would play. And I'm not particularly playing it because I want to romance the characters. I'm playing it more for a research point of view because I myself am writing a dating sim, so I wanted to see what was good and what was not good. But the characters are really interesting because they all have their own personalities, as they should. And the way that it's written through like chat form means that they have typos and they have like they can use bold and different text to accentuate what they're saying, which works really well for capturing their voices. So uh, my uh, friend of mine was playing one of these sort of chat-based games called Lifeline, which was a 
science fiction one where you're like talking with a stranded astronaut, but it sounds sort of like the same mechanic where you, it's basically in a, a chat window and you have certain, like, you have a certain number of interactions with him and then you have to wait in the real world till the next event happens. Yeah, I haven't, I think I might have heard of that game, but it's becoming quite a popular style. I've seen it around a bit, I think because it is a good thing to use for people who are using mobile or on their computers because it, it matches with what we do in the real world. So it's a really easy gameplay style to ease into because you know what you're doing to a point. Um, it's I like seeing interesting ways that people do it. And so I'm really curious about games that are doing this, partly because I also want to make a game sort of similar in style. First, I have to learn how to make games, though. But um, I don't know. If you like dating sims, Mystic Messenger is probably good. My biggest complaint is that they advertise the female character as being a romance option, and she is not. I don't understand how like dating sims even work. It's... Like, I honestly, I mean, maybe it's because I'm married and I just, I don't know if that's, maybe married people still play these dating sim games. I have no idea. <laughs> like, I, I, I'm i I'm really confused by this, to be quite honest. Yeah. Sort of so, the, like. I've never played one either, but it's, I imagine it's sort of like if you took the romance mechanic from a, a Bioware game and just took everything else out. Is that accurate? That's basically it, yeah. It's essentially just the romance in Bioware, but in its own simple game well not simple game particularly but it's own game um it's kind of do you have to romance somebody like do you have to like woo somebody essentially yes that's somewhat the point i mean you don't have to a lot of them like a lot of them have various endings and so you can end up in different places so you've got like good endings where you get the person you're trying to pursue or you get a bad ending where you screw everything up and everyone hates you um and it depends on the game and how much time they spent oh, on it. it sounds like real life basically yeah <laughs> i wasn't gonna say it but i was thinking it <laughs> i screw up everything and everyone hates me <laughs> yeah that can happen it's they're really well done some of them are really good oh. some of them are not so good but you get that with every game um yeah, true. I don't know. I kind of like it, but I don't have that much reach as far as knowing about these games. I have a lot of friends that are really into them, and I mean, write them as well. I have quite a few friends writing dating sims and visual novels, which a dating sim is kind of an offshoot from. Um, yeah, I don't know. I it's Visual novel? Can you explain what a visual novel is to me, to to the old man in the group? Okay, so a visual novel is a game that's told largely through um, dialogue and text and has, like, static backgrounds and characters, character portraits that kind of move when they feel emotion sometimes. So it's not like a... It's still like you're looking at a picture book somewhat. Um, And then they'll often, for the gameplay, they'll have puzzles or, like, a point-and-click kind of thing to solve how to get to the next part of it. Um... I haven't played many of those either. The main one I've played has been Virtue's Last Reward slash 999, which is a no-nary game. Games, which are very weird puzzle games. And I'm really bad at explaining visual novels because I don't play enough of them. But yeah, it's basically like, it's more of a picture book than a game, but it has gameplay elements. And also generally Mm. branching dialogue and different choices that get different endings. And so the, the dating sim does have a sort of story around it along with the relationship, right? It's got, like, there's something, it, it's in a particular setting and maybe there's different interpersonal relationships between other characters. Is is that right? Because that, that, is that part of the appeal of it? Yeah, definitely. So the characters themselves that you're trying to romance have their own lives. 
and everything. And so on Mystic Messenger, you basically pick up this messaging app that you shouldn't be on that is linked to some fundraising party organization. So they make parties. Um, and you end up on it by accident, and they the organization there like brings you in and forces you to help them organize a party. And so all the characters there already know each other, and they all have their own relationships, and it's you trying to organize this party while also learning about those characters and figuring out who you want to romance and helping them with their lives. And so a lot a lot of the uh, appeal does come from the story as well. A lot of them have really interesting stories going alongside the romance because it, it would be kind of boring to romance a character without anything happen- happening. I would say so if you're a romance game. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, my, like... Most the most exposure that I've had to a romance game is the, that I read a lot of reviews of had a full boyfriend because I was so confused and intrigued, and that's that's gotten very positive reviews for being. And I just googled that game with the pigeons. Yep, that is the game with the pigeons, and that is possibly one of the most well-known dating sims, um, especially in Western audiences because it is weird and I haven't played it because I'm not so fond of pigeons, but it's weird. <laughs> I don't think anyone like expected My to wife. be fond of pigeons in, in that game, particularly. Oh, in that game. <laughs> yeah. I thought you said in general. So. I mean, I like pigeons in general. I, I did. I, I almost played that one because I did hear that it like that it was good. It had a solid story, but I, I never did. It has it a really weird story. It's not what you'd expect. I'm not. I'm hmm. not sure what to expect when it comes to. <laughs> pigeon dating simulators i mean yeah there's anyway. not really much to expect but it is absolutely not what you would expect <laughs> yeah apart All from right. games have you played any games recently paul just battlefront on the reg is it i so, guess that game you know, is good I mean, to just keep playing right well, I mean, not for everybody. A lot of people like trash on it, I guess. But you know, for me, it's if I if I can be an ishy tib and, and shoot people or a weak way and shoot people, I'm good. Excellent. So I'm easy to please, you know, in that regard. Uh, yeah, I don't. I, I really like all the expansions they've come out with. I play the extraction mode like crazy, where you're basically just like protecting this uh, little shipment the entire time. And I'm, I just love that mode, it, mostly because you're going through Jabba's palace the entire time, or you're going through his hangar. So that's, oh, I just love that. And because it, it's cool, because in uh, the Outer Rim DLC, there's it's the jet when you go when you're walking through Jabba's palace and, and everything, it's all post Jedi because haunting carbonite is gone like there's like the carbonite there but han's not there it's gone the the rancor is dead and there's like flies flying around him and it's empty i don't know it just it's really cool it's like oh man this is like post jedi and I, as i'm running around java's palace i kind of thought to myself is this like is this supposed to be what java's palace is from like you know a um structural format canon wise like is this like what it's like in canon like if I'm going, is this what the dungeon layout is like, et cetera? Does that make any sense? Like I started going through that in my my mind a couple months ago. I'm like, holy crap! This is maybe this is ex- is this exactly what they is the can the canonized version of Jabba's Palace uh, floor plans, if you will? Does that make any sense? Uh, yeah, that sounds cool. 
No, I I I think that's what it is. I mean, I, I don't I know there's no story canon uh, aspects of, of obviously of uh, of this game, but at the same time, it kind of seems like all the the layouts and floor, floor plans of every structural thing in Star Wars would be probably canonized at that point because the the guns are all I'm assuming canon and the aliens are all canon, so. And we know Solist is canon, and now that there, that's an actual like planet that they essentially got to canonize themselves uh, through the you know that's non legend. So I don't know. Like I really enjoyed, I really enjoy all those aspects of it. But at the same time, I think it's meant just to kind of have a you know the the best authentic Star Wars experience that you can. And a lot of people got bored of it fast. And for me, it's like just give me more. So. Yeah, I'm, I have a lot of expectations for Battlefront 2. I, I hope there is some kind of story aspect. My biggest thing is this. I think if Battlefront, if they would have released some of these DLCs with the game when it came out, I think more people would be less uh, bitching about it, if that makes any sense. like they would, Because I think it came out with not very much on it to begin with. And people, because their options were just so limited, that people just kind of... Eh, like, you know, toss it aside. But I think the things they have added have really made a lot of a huge difference. But I think it's it's too late, obviously. It's it's done. So but there is a DLC coming out in a few months, uh, when uh Rogue One comes out where you can be Krennic and Jin Urso. So playable characters. So that's pretty cool. So I know I don't know if you guys are Jin Urso fans. I thought you guys said you were maybe on yeah. our on our show. But no, it'd be cool. And Krennic is sweet, so I mean, I don't know. I mean I don't know. I just you, I, I love the game. Have you compared the floor plan of Jabba's Palace in Battlefront with the floor plan of Jabba's Palace in the Incredible Cross Sections book? <laughs> no, it's funny you should say that because I don't have the Cross Sections book for the original trilogy, but I definitely after I thought about that, I started looking on on Amazon for the Cross Sections. That's the first I'm thing I would ask do. for it for Christmas. <laughs> No, I know I wanted to buy it, but I just get sidetracked yeah. with so many other things I want to buy. But no, I'm going to do that. Like I, had so, that's something I actually thought about. I thought, holy crap, there's actually cross sections because I wonder if they just use the cross sections part. I would, like, which would make sense, right? I would legitimately be interested in whether it's the same. Well, maybe on a future episode of Blaster Cannon, we can. I'll I'll break it down. <laughs> okay. Because <laughs> I love Jabba's Palace. It's my favorite part of Star Wars. Yeah. So I, um, not not particularly playing games, but I went to two things last week, which were both New Zealand game dev industry kind of things. Um, I went to the Pigsty Symposium, which was an academic symposium about interactive play, I think. I can't remember the exact thing it was. Um, and there were heaps of talks about how to look at different ways of interactive play and there was one talk in particular um by the co-founder of checkpoint we had one of the other founders of checkpoint on a previous episode jennifer hazel um her her friend and the other co-founder jane cox was at pigsty and she did a talk about how to potentially make games that could do positive behavioral changes which i found really interesting and so if you haven't checked out checkpoint yet you should totally go do that Jane Cox is amazing, and so is Jennifer Hazel. And then after that, I went to NZGDC, which is the New Zealand Game Developers Conference. So it's a much smaller version of the actual Game Developers Conference over in America. 
and there was so much cool stuff there. I've never been there before. I ended up getting in because I did a panel. I would not have been able to afford it otherwise. Um, but it was just, it was a really cool way to see a whole bunch of games being created. They didn't like have game demos particularly, except for a few. But you could talk to people about what they were making. And everyone was super enthusiastic about the games they were making and the games they loved. And there was a really interesting panel I went to called Sacred Talks, which was about d- adapting stories that people love into video games and keeping that true meaning without potentially like step by step adapting it so like with star wars there's the lego games which are an exact reproduction of the movies essentially just in lego form with extra jokes um and i mean this guy used a lot of lego not lego star wars things because i guess star wars is a story that everyone loves it's a it's a sacred story but this the company he works for is adapting bible stories into a mobile game i think and it was really interesting hearing how he talked about having to capture the essence of the story without actually translating the entire story into the game because they didn't want to do that. They didn't want to have this like old story that everyone already knows. They want to have something new and different. And it was interesting because I'm not a huge religious person. I'm not really, I'm not Christian. I'm not any religion. Um, and so whenever somebody kind of brings up talking about Christian stories, I'm still like, okay, I don't, this is not something that I know about. Um, but the way he talked about it and the way that they adapted it because they took, like, uh, I can't remember exactly what it was. Um, the story with the guy with the coat, the Technicolor coat. Joseph. Joseph, yes. That coat? Yes, yep. that coat. They were talking about him and how that story is largely about um, finding your place somewhat, I think it was. And that doing follows. Yeah, and, like, finding... Like, and I don't know, like that kind of stuff. And so I, like the way he just, when he condensed it down and talked about like that, I suddenly could understand what these stories meant in a way that I couldn't if, you know, I read the Bible or if I listened to somebody telling me. And I thought that was really cool. That's interesting. And I know that, I mean, to a degree, that's a discussion about um, sort of cultural sensitivity, but it's also a discussion just about how to gamify these very didactic, you know, like value-based stories. Yeah, and one reason in particular I wanted to bring that talk up was because he brought up the Blade Runner game, which apparently took a really interesting approach. I didn't even know there was a game about it. (laughs) But um, because they didn't make a, like, because back in those times when they made those games, they would just take, like, some some of the characters from the movie and then throw them into some really typical, like, shooter game or something. And so the game wouldn't actually really revolve around what the movie did. It just had some of the names in it. Um, But what the Blade Runner game did was it, took like it made new characters and took the themes from Blade Runner and used the, the sets in Blade Runner and had some of the side characters from it but it did kind of a similar thing where it told a story about empathizing with um the replicants and figuring out things that are going wrong potentially and it looked really interesting because of how they had adapted the movie into the into the game without directly adapting the movie into the game So, hmm. yeah, I, I didn't know like that there was a Blade Runner game either. What did it entail? It, I'm not sure entirely what it entailed, but apparently it had 13 different endings. And so it had like dialogue choices and stuff like that, <laughs> which, yeah, that's a lot of endings for a game, especially back like an old game. Um, so I think it very much wanted to Wait. emphasize a lot of like the ideas of Blade Runner, such as like, um, 
I forgot what I was trying to say, identity and stuff like that. And so you, it was trying to put you in a place where you could figure out why you should or could identify with the replicants and empathize with them. Is this game, this game come out in the late nineties? I think it, I remember it's funny. I was just kind of doing some very casual research for our our topic today. And I noticed there was a a video game that came out from Blade Runner in like 97 or 98 or something around there. And I was like, they came in with a game that late. Like, you know, I thought maybe recently I could see it more, but in the late nineties, uh, okay. It was just really weird. I, I didn't expect it. So, huh. It's really funny. They brought it up. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. I want to ask to be the same game. Yeah, I, I should go find out, actually. I really want to play it now, especially now that I've watched the movie and actually paid attention to it. But I think hearing about <laughs> the game itself and what it was trying to do uh, made me think about Blade Runner a bit more as I was watching it, too. So I found that kind of cool. I just like video games a lot, basically. Good synergy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So we've talked too much about games. So what about books? Megan, what are you reading? <laughs> Oh, gosh. Okay, well, um, so I'm reading the Ahsoka novel, which I can't talk about. I'm so jealous. Um, <laughs> but Yes, you can't. No, but that's coming up um, on October 11th, so that's pretty exciting. Um, I finished The Raven King by Maggie Stiefvater, which is the third, or the fourth, rather, in the Raven Boys cycle, which is a, a young adult series. And they're really quite popular. Um I started reading them because a friend recommended them to me. I started reading more of that author's stuff because she writes for Jalopnik as well. She writes about car racing and, like, modifying her car, and she's really good at that too. And um, it's definitely a series that got better as it went on. Like, the first one was really... I really only kept going because my friend suggested I do. But by the fourth one, I really liked it. The, the writing was really good. Um, not, I, I didn't think they were amazing, but it had really solid characterization about a bunch of prep school students and a non-psychic from a family of psychics trying to dig up a Welsh king's grave in modern-day Virginia. That sounds interesting. It, it is interesting. Um, <laughs> the, I don't know how to describe the characters because it's a lot about very wealthy kids who all handle wealth in different ways. And then also the sort of... There's one of the kids is in the school on a scholarship and there's a lot of tension about that because he knows he's not he doesn't come from wealthy blood like the other ones do and so there's a lot of really good characterization about teen friendships and like teen friendships with really realistic problems in them. One thing that I do wish was that there were more female characters because there there were a lot. The main girl has a whole host of female relatives but she does not, there aren't any real female peers for her she hangs out with a lot of boys and that just wasn't really what i wanted it to be but i think that's what the author wanted it to be and that seems to be working well for her that's fair i guess sometimes that's just what happens yeah and that's that's the story she wanted to tell but if you like ya fantasy and a ya fantasy with a sort of gentle but also really realistic 
um, sort of exploration of, of friendships. I would, I would recommend at least you try it, and if you don't like the first one, know that the second one is a much better uh, example of what the series can be. Cool. So, um, I finished, okay, I finally finished Ancillary Mercy. I say finally, I finished it the day after I got it out. Um, God, I love that book so much. I love that series. It's <laughs> a really good series. I'm so glad. So glad. <laughs> and I thought, actually, like, as I was talking about Halo 5 earlier, I thought it was interesting, interesting, um, thinking about Halo 5 in terms of what happens at the end of Ancillary Mercy. Ooh, yeah. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm curious to see what Halo 6 does, and so I can potentially compare the two, because Ancillary Mercy does really interesting things with the AI um, at the end, and I really like it. I really like that book. I think Ancillary Sword might be my favorite which is rare. The second book is never my favorite, but that series as a whole is just really good. And I also started um, The Long Way to a Small Angry Planet because everybody's been telling me to read that too. And I'm digging it so far. I don't super love it. Like it's not going to be one of my favorite books, I think. I think some of the characters are just a bit too, a bit too something for me. But I really like what it does with the alien species. And I really like Sissix. She's really cool. The yes. lizard lady. I love her so much. And it too. seems like a really fun book. That's that's sort of where I am with that book too. I liked it. I thought it was it was sort of more derivative than was good for it. It was like very very Firefly at times. Oh um, yeah. To to the point where I was sort of like, it was too obvious. I wanted her to do more, but when she does do more. It's really interesting, like the aliens and the stuff she does with gender roles is really good. So yeah, I, I think I'm on the same page with that. Yeah, I think it might be the Firefly stuff that kind of puts me off, because I'm not a super huge fan of it. And so some of the characters, they do sound, now I think about it, they sound a lot like Joss Whedon characters, and that might be um <laughs> what's putting me off of some of them. But the book itself is really good, and I am excited to finish it, because I, I have no clue where this is going. I'm yeah. I'm curious to see what you think. The yeah. I I have in the notes that I I read now and forever by Ray Bradbury, which is actually a collection of two novellas that were released recently. But I don't I don't have too much to say about it. It was very Bradbury. Like I I I really love something wicked this way comes. <laughs> um, I really love his short stories, and these were so it's two novels or two novellas called Somewhere a Band is Playing, which was like pure Bradbury nostalgia with a little bit of creepiness. And then Leviathan 99, which was a space adaptation of Opie Dick. And they were, they were really Bradbury, but were a lot of smoke and mirrors. And like, that's what he does. And I wanted a little more depth to them. But that's, that's about all. Like, they were, if you like him, and I'm sort of revisiting him after that being part of my science fiction canon experience, I, I would recommend ch check this out. But don't expect it to be, expect it to be brief, both to read and to think about. <laughs> right. Yeah. Interesting. I don't think I've actually read any Bradbury, so I have no clue what something being uh, very bread very means <laughs> I, I do recommend him fahrenheit 451 is just as good as everyone says it is um something wicked this way comes is 
very creepy and it's one of those books that like kind of grows with you and you find something different and creepy about it every time. Paul, you like made a noise. Do you have opinions about Bradbury? I ha- I, I really okay. don't. I have no, I just made a noise. I just thought it was funny okay. what you were talking about. That's all. All right. Paul, did you have anything you want to talk about regards to books or do you want to move on? Well, I'll quickly add that uh, I've been reading some graphic novels of uh, Alan Moore's old uh, Swamp Thing comics, which are, even though I think Alan Moore is now is really ridiculous as like a person, he just he just hates on everything and just hates I don't know he's too much of a hater, and I just hate the fact that he rejects his whole past. It seems like of, of the comics that he wrote because he really did revolutionize what comics could be from an art medium, you know, not just from a commercial medium, but like just from like, you know, uh, from the Watchmen to from hell to, uh, you know, again, Swamp Thing, Miracle Man, all these great characters um, and stories that he like really you know, comics used to be all for kids, and he brought it to a very adult medium that where people could, you could really take it seriously as an art form. I mean, we all know Watchmen is still considered one of the greatest novel, you know, novels of all time. Just and it's a comic book, you know. So I've been reading these old Swamp Thing graphic novels, which I've I have the whole collection of, and I just kind of started reading them just kind of for fun, and I started kind of blowing through them, and they're they are just really really good. Uh, you know, he just is so ahead of his time and such a revolutionary writer, but he's just an awful person to, to hear from. I just can't stand listening to him talk. This is really hard. But no, if, if people are curious about Alan Moore writings, the earlier the better, in my opinion. Um, especially this early stuff like Miracle Man. I love, love Miracle Man. Um, Marvel's reprinting all of it. Finally, it was in development hell forever because of uh, rights issues. So they finally were able to reprint it. Um, I haven't actually, I've only read up the first 10 issues of Miracle Man, but I loved it. And I'm just kind of waiting for it to finish so I can read the whole, all of it together. But, uh, no, Alan Moore's Swamp Thing is really, really good. It really takes the character and turns the whole thing upside down in a really cool way. Um, if you know anything about the character, I don't want to spoil it for people, but Swamp Thing started out as like just a very generic superhero origin where it's just like this, this, uh, doctor is working with plants and, and chemicals and he, he gets attacked and the chemicals and the plants fall on him and he turns into Swamp Thing. Well, Alan Moore came in and turned the whole thing upside down, which I won't spoil it for you, but it's really, really good. The first graphic novel is awesome. And it's, and it's basically, if you like kind of horror comic books or horror kind of, you know, feel to things that I can't recommend Swamp Thing enough. It's the Alan Moore stuff. It's really, really good. I actually have a friend who just, just, um, read through a few months ago. Um, she was reading through the Swamp Thing books for some reason, she really likes Alan Moore's early stuff as well. And she's actually a friend who, I think, told me to watch Blade Runner a lot. So maybe she's got some other uh, taste to you. Me, man, me and this girl are super buds. Maybe she's a long-lost sister or something like that, you know? She could be. But, okay. Maybe Blade Runner, Paul, since you love it so much, why did you want us oh, to boy. talk about it? What about it did you think would resonate? <sighs> Well, I, I think Blade Runner is just it's just a classic film and I think it's it's such a you know it's so powerful because of the themes it brings out. It's got amazing cinematography. 
It's got great acting. Um, I just think Ridley Scott is one of my favorite directors ever. And I'm not going to pretend that I've seen all his films, but I've seen a lot of them. And they're, they, they always just really entertain me. He, and he, do, he can do anything. He's done horror. He's done action. He's done science fiction. He's done, you know, comedy, drama. I mean, this dude can do anything. And, and his fantasy, uh, he just is so versatile. He's just incredible. And I just love majority of the work he's, that he's done. And, but, one of the things about Blade Runner that I, is so intriguing is the fact that it is one of those things where it was a, so ahead of its time that it developed itself over time and that it, when it came out, it was a box office bomb. It would just, just did not do anything critically. Um, for the most part, if I'm, if I'm not, if I don't, uh, remember correctly, I'm pretty sure, you know, it wasn't, you know, received well critically or, you know, box office wise. I know it had some people had liked it maybe from critic size, but for the most part, it's just kind of people kind of forgot about it. And it, because of, of the, the, the brilliance of home video over the years, Blade Runner just, be, you know, got momentum from word of mouth of like, man, this movie is like really good when you, when you revisit it. And, you know, part of, and it's also kind of the problem. And I'm not sure if we see this nowadays anymore, but back in the day, because it seemed like different studios owned different distribution rights for European and for, uh, American domestic. And because of that, you, different, uh, companies had control over what went in and out of the film. And especially for Ridley Scott films, Blade Runner was no exception that, that's why you have a theatrical version. You have a director's cut. You have like a work print edition. You've got, I mean, I have a, a, a special DVD box set I bought years or I got for Christmas years ago. And it's basically all of um, like all the different versions. And, and basically it's all these different versions. Now there's like a final cut that really Scott brought together. But back in the day, like it's all controlled by the different studios. So one studio had the rights for, you know, the domestic and they wanted a voiceover by with Harrison Ford. And then I believe the European version didn't have the voice or maybe it did. I don't remember, but there, all I remember is that there's different versions and different ideas that went into every single one. Uh, another kind of random note is that Ridley Scott he had another film which I love called Legend with Tom Cruise that ironically has unicorns in it, which we'll get to that in a second, um, and uh, which is really funny because when, I, when I, I'll get to that later. But basically, the same thing kind of happened where he made this film, and two different studios owned the rights for the European and the American rights, and they went two completely different directions. One went with a soundtrack that was made by the, the band Tangerine Dream, which is a version that I grew up watching, and it's a lot shorter than the European version. And the European version is a brilliant score done by Jerry Goldsmith. And it's just weird to think about these two different like aspects of pulling you know, creative forces in the two different directions. And I know Blade Runner was no exception to that, was that people kept, you know, interfering, you know, Blade, Blade Runner had, was going over budget. They were trying to shut it down. I mean, it's crazy. There is a documentary called Dangerous Days, which was one of the working titles for Blade Runner, um, one of the early script titles, which is a great title, to be honest. I love that title. It's very, it's very, uh, very basic, but I, I love that fact that it's so basic. Um, but basically it's just, it's just, ba- it, 
it, this three-hour documentary goes over everything. The genesis of the story, which is by – obviously, that this is based um, loosely off of Philip K. Dick's uh, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Now, it's not a straight adaptation. I've never read the book. And in fact, in Dangerous Days documentary, uh, the, the, the guy who kind of started the genesis of this whole thing even said, it's not, I didn't really like it. <laughs> he, he, he didn't even care for the story, but there was something deep seated into it that's really brilliant that again, that he's, you know, that he started and his name escapes me, but that, that basically that the studio that Ridley Scott got a hold of. And then he got attached to, and they started developing. And what we got was the masterpiece that is Blade Runner. So I don't know. I, I think this film again it still holds up so well. I mean, I saw it at the um, at a midnight movie theater in uh, Seattle, the Egyptian, uh, a couple of years ago, and I just you know I never I never saw it on the big screen before, and it just oh, it's beautiful. Just a beautiful – all the miniatures that uh, they use for the science fiction, like buildings and the cars. I mean it's crazy. So I I love this film. It's one of my favorite films ever. I can't recommend this film enough. But I'll be honest. I could not wait to see what you guys thought about it. So let, let me know. Tell me. What are, what are your thoughts on Blade Runner? <laughs> all right, Megan, you go. You go first. Okay. So generally I liked it. Um, there were points where I was sort of uncomfortable, not necessarily, um, (laughs) for any reason deeper than just like, like it was violent or it was bloody. Like it was, I, there were parts that were very difficult for me to watch. And I think we will definitely talk about the female characters here and about, why <laughs> I think gender was assigned very intentionally in this movie. Like the it hmm. almost couldn't have worked if any of the main characters' genders had been flipped, or at least it would have been very different if they had been. But um, yes, in general, I, I really liked it. There's so much to analyze. The owl in the in the sort of Egyptian mm. style room just became. At first, I saw it on the screen and I was just like an owl and I was so happy about that but by the end it's acquired all this yeah, meaning. Awesome. and I, I very intentionally didn't look up any of the interpretations because I wanted this to be like the person who's never seen it before tries to come up with their own interpretations thing even if they're the same interpretations people have been making since 1982 but I, I felt there was a lot <laughs> going on with the owl um, the aesthetic was amazing like I just the I really want to walk around in a trench coat and a VR headset with a glowing umbrella and just have that be my life. Like this movie was very pretty, <laughs> and it lingered. Like it, it, this movie knew it was pretty. It it let you take a lot of time uh, to see the cityscapes and to see all the details, and I loved that about it. I that's my hundred percent agree. At least on wow. on okay no on the aesthetic stuff it is it is a super gorgeous <laughs> movie and I also had trouble with some bits that I was super uncomfortable with like I I really don't I I always think her name's Victoria I don't know why Rachel I really don't like what happens with her and Deckard like I just it makes me really no. uncomfortable no super uncomfortable um mm. I don't 
Don't wait, 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 what, wait, what happened to them at the end? Wait, what are you talking about what happened to them at the end of the film or what the, the really, really awkward? No, like the really awkward kind of like romance uh, scene that feels a little bit forced. That yeah, was that's awful. terrible. I hate it. That, that, <laughs> yeah, that was, that honestly is probably my, it's not, it's not probably, it is my least favorite scene. It is forced. And it's funny because again, that you, I, you guys, you gotta watch the documentary. It's really fascinating because the studios were very, and again, this isn't like, you gotta remember the time of this film too. This came out in a time where sex was like, you know, on, on mainstream films, what sold. I mean, that's what really drove people, um, not drove people, but I mean, it, it helped your boost your sales at the theater was to have more sex in your film. I mean, that's like, I guess, I guess it much hasn't changed, unfortunately. Um, and maybe, maybe it's now changing. I don't know, but I think back in the day that was, it just was like more of a way to like, to, to bring, I guess, a male audience. And I don't know, but I do know the studio did push it very, very much to have more to a point where the writer was kicked off because he was so against it. And Ridley Scott just kind of was like, you know, I'm not going to win this because they're the ones financing the film. And they did. And what's interesting is that, you know, again, even Ridley Scott in the documentary saying like, it's just so uncomfortable. Like no one liked doing it. Um, It was, I mean, yeah. So like, so the reason I think it's so bad is because the actors don't like doing it. It looks forced because it was forced. It wasn't these actors were forcing it to a point where there's there's no natural chemistry between Harrison and Sean Young. So it just comes across bad and you could edit it out and be fine. I think there's I think they have a fine chemistry just talking. But as a, you know, sexual chemistry, it just was it just I mean, this was again. It was forced, and the whole scene was just forced. It just doesn't make any sense, and you don't have to have that to establish the fact that they have feelings for each other, and there's a connection between them. So, I mean, it's easily edited out. But I'm with you, Seth. Like I, I hated that scene, and it's every time I watch it, I'm always like, this is so awkward. I'm glad we're all on the same page with that one. Yeah, that that scene was the main thing that made me uncomfortable. Um, there were like other little bits which were again just like too much violence or whatever for me because I'm a I'm a little weenie. But the movie was just interesting, gorgeous. It was so pretty. I spent the entire thing like it's it's such an older movie, but it still may just like hold up so well because of how it did its special effects and how it laid everything out. And I just love retro science fiction because it has just really dumb things like analog photos are still a thing, but you can scan them in and use them on the yes. computer. Yeah. And the, the resolution on that photo was incredible. <laughs> oh my God. When you like zoom in and hunt, I, I love it. Cause it's stuff we wouldn't do nowadays. If we wrote science fiction, unless we were actively trying to get that aesthetic, we wouldn't be like, Oh yeah, obviously analog photos still exist in this far distant future or whatever um and it's really cool to watch that happen in movies like this because you don't you forget you forget that that was a thing and that that's what they thought the future was like and i don't know it's i feel like a lot of things from earlier on at least science fiction things they often had a really utopian vibe and they were like the future is going to be so bright and everything yes. but blade runner really captures the modern science fiction tone back then so it's it's like a it, it is quite ahead of its time because it captures how we make science fiction the tones and like the atmospheres we have in our science fiction nowadays or a lot of science fiction at least and it's in that era with that aesthetic I love the style no it, yes 
Yes. Now, when you say style, do you mean like the bleakness and the fact that everything is like a giant advertisement? You know, like the Coca Cola ad and, and like the Chinese. Um, I forgot what the, what the Chinese ad was. Yeah, um, well, I, I think you kind of hit on it right there with the. It's both bleak and colorful. Like the neon in the rain is like the 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 whole uh, through line in this movie. I really liked. Um, and also how cluttered it was in the same way as Star Wars. And I had to look this up and see whether it, where it fell in between Star Wars movies because I thought they had that in common, that it was a future that was very messy and even, even sort of more so than Star Wars. Yeah, I was feeling that too. I got no. that, like, as I was watching, I was like, this feels very much like how Star Wars has the same clutteredness and the same kind of lived-in sort of dirty feeling while still not being... 100% like dark and grimy like it's still got the brightness I did get that feeling too Megan yeah but the lighting was incredible the, that one really blue scene and I don't remember I think it was near the beginning with the, with the police station maybe where it's just oh, blue yeah. light mm-hmm, yeah. filtering like with dust filtering through it the one thing that I thought looked aged and like aged in a way that was jarring instead of that was just really nice was the fonts like i i wanted i was like there's gonna be more fonts by the future but the rest of it i i had i really loved the look of it and even the things that i didn't always like about it the the dancers role um played into that theme of like disjointedness and even the way the violence was shot the way the action was shot was so much about the idea of like separating the mind from the body or separating parts of the body and like the the scene where he breaks Harrison Ford's fingers was horrific but it was also all about like he so he takes the hand by itself the same way we saw the eyes by themselves before and you can't see Harrison Ford's face mm. so it's about like dehumanizing him it's about making him into a mechanical thing instead of a person like there was so much that you could read into about the idea of bodies and the idea of um sort of bodily autonomy that that was was mm-hmm. really good. And while part of me was like, of course, one of them's like a, quote, pleasure robot, and I had to roll my eyes at it, <laughs> it also does kind of work into that theme of bodily autonomy as much as I would sort of prefer that it, it it's not what I would prefer. But and to be fair to to the film, I think that they showed you all kind of aspects of life with Every every kind of replicant because you had Roy and you had the other one. Oh my gosh, I forgot his name. The guy who at the very beginning of the film, uh, they are you know they're more brute strength kind of you know they're heavy lifters kind of a thing. And um, and at Sebastian's uh, place, yeah, all these different toy things. So there, I mean, I think the film did a, I think a decent job of showing the different kinds of replicants that are out there, and and what and how basically, and again, it kind of fits into the theme of what's going on of what replicants are are doing and what we're replacing with our real lives are these machines. You know, that's obviously the giant obvious theme of the film, and I think that. Even though, yes, it's predictable, and and again, it's very of its time where it's like there's a pleasure model or whatever, you know. And but at the same time, I think it it goes back into the theme of what 
makes Blade, Blade Runner so good is that these machines are there and they have a, a short lifespan and we're putting our, all of our energy into these machines that are, aren't going to give back to us eventually. There's a there's going to be a stop point to these things. And I think that it just kind of goes back into that whole theme of, of you know, you can't you, – we as humans can only, you know, put so much into this, you know, artificial anything, whether it be life or, you know, like even into the computer. I mean, look at the internet now. We put so much into the internet, but how much do we actually get back to it? I mean, we get a lot, but we also have to like, there's more to life than all of it. So, and then you have to, there's more to, you know, there's more, you need more human interaction. You know what I mean? So I think Blade Runner really plays off that so well. And I think I, I, I give, I forgive it a little bit more, you know, to that point, you know, for me anyway, just because I don't know, the, 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 to me, I, it just goes right and really well with what they're trying to say, essentially, you know, I mean, look at the whole future. I mean, you have skyscrapers with giant machine billboards and everything is electronic and, to the point where now, you know, we have workers, you know, to replace us. And now the earth's been so overpopulated with, you know, people and with machines and buildings that they're going off world for this. So I think to me that it, it, yeah, she could have been some, somebody else, but it just fit into, it just felt, it felt very natural to me to have it on there. But maybe it's because I'm a guy and I, I unfortunately and numb to all this kind of crap. Unfortunately, I don't know. It could it could be, but uh, that's just kind of what I kind of so took out. I know it wasn't really the point, but I wouldn't mind seeing the story of the off-world replicants. Like, I want to know what they were mm -hmm. like before they came to Earth, and like what's going on on those outer planets. And that might be something that, if the movie was made today, we might get more of a glimpse of that. Well, yeah, and in fact, there was a, there were so many different scenes and, and introductions to these characters. One of the scenes that was going to be uh, made, which I thought was brilliant, was actually um, a bunch of uh, on this off-world planet, uh, like a bulldozer or some kind of futuristic science fiction bulldozer on this outer planet, like putting a bunch of replicant parts, like you know, arms and legs, all kind of yes. they're all damaged and destroyed. Yeah, and, like they're put into a pile, and then like Roy Batty like pops like after it leaves, he kind of pops out of it. Um, was that was originally going to be his introduction, which would have been oh, really wow. nuts. Um, yeah, so I mean, we almost got that, and I, I'm with you. Like, there, this world is so rich that it's you know, it's it's so I don't know. There's so many great stories you could tell from this. And what's interesting, this is kind of a weird side thing. The one of the um, screenwriters, David Peoples, he wrote a movie called Soldier with Kurt Russell. And he – it basically is about like these like soldiers and science fiction and it's loosely in the same universe as Blade Runner. Huh. Um, he, he wrote it with that in mind, he said. It's not like they asked him to do this but he just did it and he said he wrote it and he – in his mind, it's in the same universe because like I think it uses like the same planets or something. Like they reference it. I haven't gone that deep in it but I know they're connected somewhere Kind of like in a weird canonish way, That's not loosely, if you will. Which I've been wanting. I've I've, I've never even seen Soldier. It came out when out in like the mid nineties, but I've heard, I actually have heard somewhat decent things about it. So I'll check it out eventually. Uh, but, the other thing about like uh, yeah. the wider universe, I think, is that that 
Tears in the Rain speech that's so, so well known did such a good job by itself <sighs> of showing what the outer, the rest of the universe was like. And that was so good. Like, I loved that speech before I knew what it was from. You know, I'd heard it on, in other contexts. But that was really good. Really? Yes, you heard it before you heard, you saw yeah, the film. Yeah, so I actually saw that. Wow. Somewhere on the internet, in like reference to Star Wars, somebody I think it was just like attached. You know how people will put little artist comments under fan art, and I think it was, it was an artist who'd also done Star Wars or something. However, I came across it. It it had been divorced of its source material, but I was curious about where it was from. Hmm. Seth, do you have anything to say about the uh, about the Roy Batty and all the replicant stuff we were talking about? I don't know. I feel like I should have so many more thoughts on that, but for some reason, I just really didn't like Roy, and because of that, I struggled to like empathize with what he was doing. Hmm. And so the final Tears in the Rain speech, I was all like, just push him off, push him off the roof, man. It's fine. Just do it. <laughs> he <laughs> was dying anyway. Oh, wow. I mean, no, I, I mean, I know. Push yeah, it was... off the roof. I thought he was going to push Dickett off. No! Um, <laughs> See, like, oh, definitely. Man. Sorry, go ahead, Seth. Oh, go ahead, Seth. I don't know. I I feel like I missed, like, I paid attention when I watched it, but I feel like I still missed something <laughs> and some symbolism or something, and so it didn't entirely click with me. I really liked Rachel and her thing, but um, Roy and Pris, I was not so fond of, partly because I think I've seen other characters with similar archetypes who I didn't like particularly, so they got reflected back onto Pris and Roy and their part in the story. Um, I just, I don't know, that entire final scene when like when he takes off his shirt and starts like howling like a dog, and I was like, buddy, what are you doing, buddy? Why are you doing this? just like, what's with the howling? <laughs> Put your shirt back on. I, uh, but, yeah. At the end, I was definitely, well, not at the end, but at the end of that fight scene, I was definitely left sort of thinking about how very, very morally ambiguous it is, because uh, Deckard is, like, the good guy, generally, but he's also the noir guy, and he has his own issues, and he's, a, he's drinking all the time and having less than optimal relationships with people, and then you've got the replicants and the ones we see are like Roy Batty is an actual murderer and Rachel is on the more innocent side of things and the I know the moral ambiguity was the point and but at the same time I was like I sort of want I want a little bit more to sympathize with on both sides I want more about Deckard as a, a, a really um sort of a sympathetic human being b before or after we find we talk about whether or not he's actually a human being and I want more about the replicants as like a family and how are they are, are they really attached to each other or are they just sort of together because of convenience it's funny because that the end of the film is probably my favorite part of the movie uh and it's mostly because you have this machine who is just – it's basically – they're in their fight or flight mode, mode right at that point. 
So you start seeing the, these humanistic aspects of the, of the of this machine coming out of, and it's amazing because he knows he's going to die, and the whole time he's toying with Deckard, and again we'll get to Deckard and all his what he represents later, because because I don't think Roy knows what Deckard stands for or is at this. At, to be honest, in my opinion, maybe some people do. I don't know. This is what the beauty of this, this film is. In my opinion, he doesn't. And I think what's amazing is that Deckard is like, and, and Roy are kind of two opposite sides of the coin. One person slowly dying and one person's fast, fastly dying. One person is just doesn't really, it doesn't seem like he cares to live. And one person wants to live. And you have those two elements crashing at the end. And the fact is the one who wants to live is toying with the other one. And the other one who's just kind of just, you know, doing kind of going through the motions of his life and, and all that, he's being like taught to live through this character. And it's not the, the, the classic, you know, good guy versus bad guy. And that's what makes it so good is because the bad guy seems to be teaching the, the antagonist is teaching the protagonist in a way, but he's in it because the, the antagonist could kill Deckard in a second. You know, he easily, he's so powerful, but he doesn't. He just toys with them the entire time. And that to me is so fascinating. You see, you know, uh, Rick Deckard trying so badly to, to, to do his job and to end this last replicant, but he can't. He's like, he's outmatched and he has. I, at that point, you think, you know, Decker probably thinks, like, I'm going to die. And he's trying his best. And the whole time, like, when he grabs his hand and breaks his fingers one by one, again, I think Roy's telling Deckard, this is what you have, this is what you have, and I don't. You have this, and this will heal, This, but I won't. Like, I I think he doesn't get, like, a, I don't know, is it Rick or uh, Roy who gets a nail yeah, through the hand? Roy. I want to say it's like, Roy. intentionally stabs yeah. himself, which... I thought, yeah. and this this really, what you said, which was great, all sort of lends more to this, which that reminded me of Kylo Ren. It's like someone who's trying to keep themselves awake and aware through pain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exa- you know, exactly. And that, to me, is what's, again, that and the ending is so beautiful. And, and it's funny because when you, if you, if you just listen to the speech by itself, it's it's if you it's a little cheesy, right? Like, I'll I'll give it that. The but, beginning is perfect, in my opinion. <laughs> but right, no, 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 I, I agree. But I think in the context of the film and of the character, again, in that teaching moment with with Rick and and Roy, I love the fact that 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 Roy has just accepted his fate, and that you know finally. That he's trying to finally give life to, you know, this dark world and, and, and which is Rick Deckard, right? Which is essentially him. And Rick, like, kind of at that point learns that he has to live. I don't know. I, I just love the speech is great. I think, and it's what's interesting is that the whole, like, you know, teardrop line is actually something that Rucker Hauer came up with on the spot and left it in. Um, so that was all improv. That part, that line was improvised and, and done with him, not written in the script. And the writers were like, we're kind of taken aback by it at first. It seemed like, but they said they, they loved it after a while. So, um, you know, it's 
I don't know. I love I just that whole ending is to me is what really makes the movie. And I think, yeah, it's, it's a little cheesy with the dove and how, you know, flaps <laughs> up and everything. Like, again, like, again, it's, this is the eighties. This came out like over, you know, 20, like 30 years ago. I mean, whew, yeah, I'm 34. So I, it came out in 82 and that's what I, it's 34 years old. So the same age as I am. So, I mean, it's freaking old. So I don't know. I, I you gotta forgive some things about it, at least from the cheesiness yeah. factor, like yeah. the love scene. is so bad, but, yeah, I'm sorry, Seth. What were you gonna say? Um, what you said about that actually, I was really confused by the ending. Ending, like the last scene when he like picks up the unicorn mm-hmm. and then like hears Roy's yeah. voice <laughs> and then he leaves. About the and I was unicorn. like, <laughs> and and I was like, because he hears that little bit of Roy's speech. I was like, does that mean they're gonna die? Like, what's happening? And you talking just now made me realize that like he's probably like hearing that, thinking, yeah, we we're probably gonna die right now, but like I'm alive now and we're gonna we're gonna live. Um, which makes sense suddenly because I I watched that and it ended and I was like. I don't understand anything that just happened in this movie. <laughs> but actually, um, before we talk about the unicorn or anything else, Megan, you mentioned the owl, and I have no clue what the owl means. It meant nothing to me, but I thought it looked really cool. What did you think about the owl? Oh, man. Okay, so the owl, I thought it, it immediately went with that sort of classic, um, the classic architecture of the whole place. So like it symbolized wisdom because it belonged to the scientists that made all of them. But it was also a uh, like genetically modified owl. It wasn't real or maybe it was. So that sort of encompassed and contains the entire thing. (laughs) Um, And I loved how they showed the reflections in the eyes because it's eyes look fake and especially so they show the eyes with that weird flattened reflection when Roy walks in it's the left eye I think and when he walks out after having squished the scientist's face it shows the the right eye and I thought it just added so much in terms of um of the eye symbolism, which is just all over this, about how we perceive things and also about how we are told to perceive things, which um, goes with the advertising theme as well. Um, Mm -hmm. It's sort of like you you see what you have been made to see, and it also connects to that idea of uh, artificiality, which I think I, I feel sort of like I'm repeating myself here, but just the way it was shot emphasized how fake it looked in a very intentional way and I thought that made the scene extra disjointed and extra artificial but the world around it was not artificial so you were just left with this feeling of like Roy feels artificial and he wants to be more like a human, not in a sort of emotional, I want to be a real boy way, but just in a, he wants to live a, a longer life and to have a more natural um, experience of his own bodily autonomy. You know, you brought up a point about the owl earlier, and I actually asked my wife to come down because she's an English major. She teaches English. <laughs> And I wanted to ask her because I know the owl represents something, but I didn't know what it was. And I knew she could give me some kind of answer what the owl will represent in uh, in the film. Morgan, do you have any idea what the owl represents in Blade Runner? Okay, well, hello, hello. Hey. We have <laughs> another special guest. 
can't yeah, hear you. Yeah, she can't hear you guys. I'll have my head. Here, this I'll give you a good headphone. surprise. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> hey guys hey, hey. <laughs> um okay so right like oh did we lose you uh-oh come back pull did we lose them okay. oh uh, okay. we're good okay. I'm, I'm back i'm back so she, she, she muted us by accident i don't know what i'm doing that's oh, okay so what were you saying with the owl um okay well so like owls represent knowledge right like that's like a common like symbol and in this case in the film right like the owl um is like a replicant yes so what could right when you're thinking about those two things together like what could that suggest what, 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 what I'm is, proposing that to you all. That's, no, I'm an English teacher. No, 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 no. You tell me because what does an owl normally normally represent? Knowledge. So fake knowledge. Yes. But does that also mean so, that's what, that the replicants have think. more knowledge than humans do? Ooh. Does it represent? Well, because she is does too, Does it like, represent right? their fake the, memories yeah, Rachel? and stuff? Yeah. And, and like, is it a hint at like Ooh, um, yeah. some humans Ooh. being replicas without realizing it? Which could be a thing in the in the movie, other than Rachel. No, I th- I think that definitely would would make sense because you see it first. That's the first thing you see in um, what's his name the uh, the head guy's uh, room before he inter- interviews Rachel and tries to figure out you know what's going on with all these different characters. But yeah, that's that's what I wanted to know because an owl represents knowledge, and that's the first thing you see. With and it's the eyes are kind of funky, just like Rachel's eyes are kind right. of funky too, right? Yeah. So it would, rec- so it would represent like some kind of some kind of. I I look to it as like false knowledge, if you will, like almost like a false god, you know? Huh. Like because it's it's a, because it's 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 showing you that this is not the right the right thing to be following, if you will. Is that makes is that is that makes any sense? So I guess the way that I'm thinking about it is like, because um, okay, the whole the whole like you have to look at the context, right? So the context in which this owl appears, like he's trying to interview her to figure out if she's a replicant, and the owl's a replicant, and so perhaps it's some kind of comment on like, I mean, I don't know, I don't know, like exactly, I haven't thought through this enough, I think, but like. I feel like it's some kind of comment on like the inability maybe to tell the difference. I don't know. No, uh, that's a good point. That's I don't a good know. point. I just wanted to have her jump down and, and tell us what the <laughs> owl represented because I knew I knew it had some like general thing. I was like, okay, she'll without me even looking on the internet, I could just ask my my wife. So, and but, she, I mean, I'm not I'm not an expert. Oh, you're well, an expert. No, I'm not. <laughs> and she and she loves Blade Runner too. So I, I do I, love Blade uh, Runner. It's yeah, pretty awesome. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, I just wanted to ask <laughs> well, her that quick question. You. So, all right, bye, bye. guys. Bye. So, so sorry. She was just got back. So, I want to I want to hit her up her her knowledge on that. So yeah, no, I think the you. I, so I guess what I was trying to do is I thought it was interesting. You guys brought up the owl multiple times because I knew there was some significance to that from like a you know theme standpoint. So that's why I wanted to to bring it up. Was so it would make sense that it re- represent knowledge at that point because it's a replicant. I like the idea that it so. almost represents the presence of Rachel as well. I think that that requires a bit more, a bit more reaching. But that's also that could be, could be really interesting. Mm-hmm. No, yeah, totally. I mean, the 
I think it, I think he, the owl represents multiple things because you see it multiple times. But it's funny because I never got the eye thing until you mentioned it today, Megan. So that like with the whole scene with the the freezer yeah. and everything. So which is awesome. Which by the way might be one of my favorite lines in the film when he says, "If only you could see what you what I've seen with your eyes." Mm. Oh, oh. Oh, it's so good. Oh, it's so good. Oh, it's so good. And see, I think, again, another reason why I think the movie works so well and it stays and it's and it stayed. uh, What's the point? What's what I'm trying to say? uh, Relevant and and still a masterpiece after all these years that the dialogue isn't all isn't flat. It doesn't come across all the time like it's, you know. From the eighties, it, it some of the stuff in there still impacts you. Um, like that line is is powerful. It's like oof, you know, because these people have seen these awful things. And, you know, I don't know. I I okay. love that line. So, so speaking of symbolism, we probably only have like one more thing to talk about because we've been talking a lot about this movie. But we should tackle the unicorn yes. because that seems like a big thing. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like the unicorn is important in some way. <laughs> just a little. I just, just love the imagery of tackling a unicorn. Um, I feel like that yeah, might so end badly. <laughs> that, um, that was... I was on board until then. I There was a lot less Deckard is a replicant stuff than I thought there would be. I, just my general pop culture knowledge, I thought that that was going to be the main point of this movie. I thought there was going to be a Darth Revan style twist where you were going <laughs> to outright find uh. out. And there there never really was. And I didn't leave the movie going, oh, the unicorn means he's a replicant. I, I was sort of confused. I did think that Harrison Ford playing piano sadly while bathed in golden light and dreaming of a unicorn was the purest example of female gaze I've ever seen in a movie. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. That might be the best thing I've ever heard you say. (laughs) I'm I'm, like, that's not a, I mean, that is a personal opinion, but that's not a personal opinion. That's just, I, I think, one of the rare examples of that. Um, <laughs> so I was very, I had a lot of questions at the end, including is he maybe going to kill Rachel? What's with the creepy cop? Is Are the dreams implanted? Um, those were the main ones, I guess. <laughs> so Saf, what, what about you? Okay. Okay, so I remember watching this movie I have actually seen it twice now. I watched it, I think, last year at some point, and I watched the theatrical cut back then. I don't know why. I think that was just the version I had. Um, and I didn't understand the movie at all. I did not pay any attention to it, and I thought, and I was like, why is he making unicorns? I don't understand what this origami means. And one of my friends kind of gave me this little kind of rundown of the theory. It was like, in the other cut, there is a dream, and it means this, and blah, blah, blah. And so I ended up watching that cut this time, or one of the cuts with the unicorn dream. I don't know how many have that. I don't know about these cuts, but... um. I still didn't understand entirely what it meant. I don't, I don't either. <laughs> like, I got to the end, and I was like, I see the unicorn is there. What does this mean? And my friend was like, oh, it's like hinting that his dreams are implanted and this other guy knows what he's dreaming, um, which I thought was interesting. 
like I like that if they are I mean obviously they are somewhat trying to hint that Deckard might be a replicant I do kind of like that they leave it ambiguous because that way you are questioning it and in that way that you kind of question how much other people could be replicants sort of so it doesn't give you a straight answer of this is what a replicant could be like and obviously he empathizes with other replicants because he's actually a replicant so like he could still be a human and other stuff might be going on or he might not be i i do love well, ambiguity though hmm. like i'm a huge fan of ambiguity at the end of my movies but also this was just like a little bit too much confusion there's there's so many questions at the ending and <laughs> i have no clue what Dickard might do after he gets into the elevator there's there's just no no way for me to know well, it's funny because they're in the different versions in the theatrical version uh, with the voiceover. Now, the voiceover, you know, was basically the studio felt that people would, were going to get confused. So they had Harrison Ford do like some like major like explain scenes to the audience, essentially. And Harrison Ford did not want to do it. And you when you listen it. to it, he sounds bored. Oh, my bored. God. He sounds so yeah, flat and like, bored. Oh, so I didn't see that. Yeah, I, it's, I saw the final cut. You should be lucky. No voiceover. Be glad. Which is – yeah, which is the best. I, I Some people who first watched it with the voiceover, they love it. But – which, again, it goes back into its noir uh, roots, which is cool. But I think it doesn't do the film any, any, any justice. But uh, and I believe – and again, I've only seen the theatrical cut. I don't even know if I've even seen the whole thing because I've only seen the, the director's cut and then the final cut. Um, basically, the, the theatrical version, they call it the happy ending <laughs> where – the the unicorn represents that uh the that guy what's his name uh is it hag the other is it half oh my gosh half that's right I call him hag half I'm so bad with names um with the half shows up and he leaves the unicorn representing that he was here and that he's letting them go and it shows Deckard and uh Rachel driving off in like the wilderness by themselves. Oh. And like, and basically, somewhere he he finds out that Rachel won't won't be uh, die in four years. That she's like a lifelong model or some something strange like that, where they can ride out to the sunset together. That's the original ending. Um, but in the director's cut, which was and again, and in the final cut, it was it was always meant for the, the again to imply that Deckard was a replicant of, or at least give that the impression that that was there because you have the dream you have, you know, right before you see he dreams of the unicorn. He tells Rachel, you have all this guy's, you know, niece's memories that are implanted in there. And then he's dreaming of a unicorn. And then all of a sudden you have uh, half sh- drop off the unicorn at the very end. And I love the very end line where he's like, where he says, it's a shame she won't, she'll never live. But then again, who does? You know, I mean, it's, it's beautiful. And for me, I think it, it works so well for, for Decker to be a replicant. And it only makes sense. You would send a replicant to take out a replicant. Is that, you know what I mean? Like you would want them to think they're human and they have like, they have like a, a sense of entitlement above them, you know, to take them out. You know what I mean? But they're just as powerful. So it would make sense that way. But then what um, if they just like, re- I don't know. I, like retire them when they're done with their cop work. Does that mean that half or gaff, or whatever his name is, is also a replicant? Cause he was a blade runner, right? 
Yeah, he he worked for those people. Yeah, they never really implied what he was exactly, but he, he had it, weird it, fashion sense. It, to me, it, <laughs> he he had sweet <laughs> fashion sense. I thought, um, no, yeah, but he, I think he was definitely a part of that crew, and so uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think that he he probably. I think that's why he let him go. And that's why he gave him the unicorns. He knew that you know he was going to let him run off because they they took out. He knew, he knew Deckard wasn't going to be a problem, you know, because he had already he was one of the best Blade Runners out there. So he probably knew that he would never go bad because he knew that that one half would find him anyway, and they were just going to run off together. So I don't know. I think again the whole more human than human kind of aspect of that ending is so amazing that. It, it makes the, it makes the movie. I mean, I I have a, a unicorn Blade Runner T shirt that I I love. It's one of my favorite T shirts to wear. Um, it's just because I love that film. In fact, I I probably at some point will buy, will will get a tattoo of, of the origami unicorn on because I love that the imagery and, and what and what it implies. If I ever have get the guts to actually get a tattoo, my wife's got a bunch, but I'm like, oh, don't put a needle in my arm, you know. But no, I I think. I love the the uh, I can't say that word. I love what they imply of the film, and I think that to me it's obvious that he's a replicant. But you know who knows? They are making a sequel oh, to this yeah, film with Ryan Gosling, and yeah, so it'll be interesting to see where they go. I know Harrison Ford's in it, so and it, and obviously he's aged in the movie. So unless they do some weird CGI thing, which I I doubt they will. So. Um, but yeah, I'm excited to where they go with it. Uh, but I, I think he's a replica. What do you myself. think, Megan? Well, I think I really want to see this aesthetic extended into the rest of the solar system, and like, I'll, I would watch a second <laughs> movie just to see more glowing umbrellas in space. Um, <laughs> so I think he's a replicant. I, I have to ask, what would that mean? For the movie. So if he is, then that means that he identifies with them partially because he's also one of them. Or it means that the work is so convincing that it doesn't matter whether he's one of them or not. And if he's not one of them, then it means that he can sort of bridge the gap between the two and that he's sort of the like human savior figure. And I'm trying to think of which of those would be more satisfying, and it sort of comes out to it doesn't really matter. So maybe all of us are actually... Our, our autonomy is dependent only on outside forces, and maybe that's the lesson. <laughs> Ooh, wow, you're getting deep on me. This is awesome. See, this is, this is, this is exactly why I want to talk about this film, because... It brings out so many different things in different people that we all interpret things differently. And I love hearing yeah. the different interpretations because because there's no wrong answer. And that's why I think this movie is so loved by so many people is that it does so many different things to so many different people. And, yeah, I think questioning all that stuff is, is so right for this film. You know, like, yeah, I, I think it's brilliant, Megan. Yeah. I really do. I- Continue. Sorry. Well, it's just nice that there's so much to talk about, and that's what. And I think that's why I'm going to stand with my stance that the answer is that it doesn't matter because the answer, the answer Mm. is the question. (laughs) 
That was, <laughs> yeah, no, I I completely agree with that. That's kind of what I was thinking too, because I was like, I don't know if I would rather him being a replicant or a human and what that entails and what that implies for the rest of the movie. But having that ambiguity and having that line between the two where he could be either, but you don't know, and it kind of implies both things at once in that case, it, it kind of works well because it makes you think about it. And it doesn't give you it doesn't give you any solid interpretation of the film, particularly. Like, you kind of have to consider all sides. You know what's funny is I never thought of the idea of what if he dreamed of a unicorn just randomly or thought about it and then there was a co- it was it was all a coincidence that half puts the, the origami unicorn down and that represents the fact that he's got to he's got to pursue something that is a, a you know greater than himself and that's why he leaves where you know with Rachel so which is i think a beautiful brilliant thing as well which would work perfectly and if he wasn't a replicant i think I think it, the timing is kind of weird with with the with the film of the, of the placement of the unicorn, with after he explains to Rachel what that is. But at the same time, if that's what you know, again, I mean, if that was the the definitive answer was actually no, this is what he actually is a regular human. But this it happened to be a, a coincidence that half weaves a unicorn there. Um, then I think that that's brilliant right there. So I don't know. I, I think that again. You're right, Megan. The answer the the answer is the question itself. I would itself. want to watch the beginning so, again too and see the other origami animals because I know he made a couple more, but I don't remember what they were. Well, he made okay. The only other one I remember off the top of my head was he made like a matchstick man yeah. kind of thing, uh, like like a, like a little person oh, yeah. when they're in, where they're going through the yeah. old apartment. Yeah. So that's the only other one, but that that probably represents just like you know they were here maybe you know like these fake this fake person represents that these replicants yeah. were here because they weren't real people. So I thought there was another I animal. Too. It, yeah, maybe maybe it was. I thought it was a person. Not in that I thought scene it was a person earlier, like one of the very first scenes with with the group of mm-hmm. all the Blade Runners and police guys. No, no, no. I think you're right. I think you're right. I think you're right. I, I don't remember what it was, in, though. In, I have had a lot of fun talking about this movie, and I think that's the that's the, the way I can really recommend it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> totally. So, you guys, you get, so after talking about it, do you guys like it more or less the same? More, I, I think. I would still... I would still, you know, tell people to sort of be aware of what you're getting into when you go to watch it, but it's, there's, we've gotten so much discussion about it. I definitely appreciate how many layers there are to it. Yeah, I think I, um, I'm not sure I like it more, but I definitely feel like I understand it a little bit more, if that makes any sense. If there's even an ability to even understand what the movie is doing, but I... I feel a bit more closure about the movie. That's yeah. awesome. So I think, is there anything else you guys <laughs> want to talk about? No, I'm good to go. It. All right. So I'm going to do something slightly different this episode because I am actually genuinely curious what our listeners think. I want to know whether or not our listeners think Deckard is a replicant or not, or their feelings on that question in particular, <laughs> because I just, I'm really curious what people think about that. 
It's a really interesting question. So hit us up on Twitter at Western underscore reaches if you want to answer that. Um, please do, because I, am, I, I love hearing theories about this kind of stuff. And otherwise, Paul, thank you so much for coming on. No, thank you for having me on. It's such an honor to be on here with you guys. And, you know, we've podcasted together for a while now, and it just seems weird when we don't. So, you know, you know, I love you guys, and you guys are great. And you guys, your guys' podcast is so good. And you guys don't need me on this, that's for sure. But I just, I feel honored that I get to talk about something, you know, that I love with you guys besides Star Wars, which is great. So, you know, I'll, anytime you guys want me on, I'll be on. So, we oh, love yeah. Thanks so much. Yeah, yeah. So, Paul, no where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Herman22 with two N's, a.k.a. P-Thug. Um, you can also find me on uh, Marvel Newscast, um, at Marvel Newscast, my podcast where I go – We, me and my partner, uh, Sean, we go through all the Marvel uh, studio news like the films and the TV series. Um, you know, we just, yeah, I've been doing that with him for a long time now and he's a great guy. And obviously you can catch us at Blaster Cannon Pod, uh, with these lovely ladies, um, where we break down, we should have a new episode coming out soon where we break down life debt. We are now on iTunes. Thank God. Finally, it took forever. Woo. So, uh, yeah, you guys will be able to have that out probably in the next week or so. So expect that to be coming out soon. Paul is awesome. So you should definitely go check him out on Twitter and his other podcast if you haven't already. Megan, whereabouts can we find you? Um, I can be found at Blog Full of Words on Twitter. I also have, um, I write for DelrayStarWars.tumblr.com. I have a new article out on StarWars.com today about Masters and Apprentices. And I can be found writing about video games for Den of Geek. I'm very excited about the article. And I am Seth, obviously. Um, you can find me on Twitter. <laughs> I've been talking this entire time, but I am Seth. You can find me on Twitter at Wanda Lustin, Wanda Lusting without the G. Um, you can also find my website, notsethwork.com, and I am around in other places. Um, I look out for something new and exciting related Toshi Station soon that also involves me. And that's all I'll say about that. For now, thank you so much, Paul, for coming on again, and don't forget to check the Western Reaches. <laughs>